You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Did you know that indigenous people are custodians to 80% of the world's biodiversity, but are 19% of the world's poorest? Well, I had no idea and had a great time interviewing Indie Fly Executive Director Matt Schilling. We talk about some of the amazing projects that they're working on, such as the Ana Atoll project in French Polynesia, the Rewa Eco Lodge in Guyana, and the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming, where they're working with indigenous communities to create sustainable livelihoods, improve health, food security, and many other benefits through fly fishing. So, hope you enjoy. And if you are enjoying listening to the Sustainable Angler podcast, uh, it really helps out a lot if you could leave a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, that helps us get in front of uh, more anglers who are, who are interested in learning about how to protect what we love, um, which is what we're trying to accomplish through this podcast. So anyway, if you could do that, it uh, would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This episode of the Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go zero waste and carbon neutral. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. Well, Matt, let's kind of get things kicked off with, uh, you know, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> tell, tell, tell us more about IndyFly. Yeah, sure. My name is Matt Schilling, and I'm the executive director of IndyFly, as you mentioned. And IndyFly is an organization that empowers indigenous communities to protect their remaining pristine places in the world. So we enable indigenous communities to own and operate fly fishing ecotourism businesses. These businesses provide sustainable livelihoods, generate community-wide economic benefits, and really create incentives for the protection of indigenous homelands. And listeners to your show may be asking themselves at this point, you know, with so many global issues on the forefront today, why do y'all focus on indigenous communities? And the simple answer is because indigenous communities are vital. Uh, So let me just throw out a few facts about indigenous peoples for you. So they total 476 million in population, 6% of the global population, but 19% of the world's poorest people. You have 5,000 different groups in more than 90 countries, so they have a large footprint. They occupy lands totaling about 22% of the land surface on Earth. And here's the kicker that I think is one of the most important things in why we do what we do. Indigenous peoples are custodians of 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. Whoa. 80%, right? Um, another question, you know, that people may be asking themselves at this point is, is look, I, I know like Rick's, uh, I know Rick likes fly fishing, <laughs> but is it really a viable solution, right? Yeah. And the fact is fly fishing is a proven successful model. And, and, and I just thought I'd share a few reasons of why it works. Yeah. So one, it's familiar, 
many of the communities in which we operate already know how to fish for because they fish to put food on the table for sustenance, right? Yep. So we simply expand on the expert local knowledge and introduce a new tool, which is fly fishing, which drives tourism to, to their communities. Of course, there's a lot of local entertainment derived from this introduction to fly fishing, right? <laughs> Generally, people think we're a bit crazy trying to catch what is often eaten locally in the least effective way possible, and then having the audacity to release it in front of them. Uh, it, 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 it's entertaining, um, and you know, generally the, the people, the locals, the indigenous communities that we're serving think we're a bit crazy in the beginning, but uh, you know, once people start coming down, they, they quickly get it. Another reason why is it sustainable, right? You know, yep. th this goes in, into what we're going to talk a little bit more about. So all Indie Fly projects are rooted in science and are strictly catch and release. Yeah. So what that does is this instills a deep conservation ethic from the beginning, which results in not only an improved experience for visiting anglers, right? But this mindset of conservation for the future locally. Yep. Uh, just a quick aside, anyone that's more interested in the science, I don't think we'll spend a lot of time uh, on it today, but our science team is really strong. So you can find, uh, I think there's six today, um, peer-reviewed publications from our work on the website. Uh, our science team cranks out papers at a seemingly unprecedented rate. And as they become available to the public, which isn't all that quick, <laughs> um, sure. we, we like to throw them up on the website so people can read them. Uh, and, and really the last reason of why it works, but certainly not the least, is it can be lucrative, right? We're trying to create sustainable livelihoods and jobs. And done yeah. right, ecotourism operations can drastically improve a community's sustainable bottom line. So when, when I talk about sustainability, I talk about it in kind of these pillars that we always use, right? So yep. there's the cultural side, there's the economic side, and there's the environmental side. Yep. And we try to focus on all of those when we talk about sustainability. And our model really results in, in the creation of sustainable livelihoods, improved health, food security, the ability to, for, for communities to stay together. Um, all, all of those things is the culmination of we're successful. Yeah. Um, well, that is, so first off, that's all amazing. Um, and I've been really stoked about doing this interview because I've, I've been following Indie Fly for a while and I've always thought that I was just like, man, that's what y'all do is so unique, but I had and, and valuable, uh, but I had absolutely no idea about some of those stats that, 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 that's pretty incredible. Obviously the big one, um, a couple ones that stuck out to me was 80%. And they're, they're basically stewards of 80% of the remaining biodiversity but also 19, I think, percent of the world's poor. And so it sounds like to me with what y'all do with, with fly fishing and bring, introducing them into these communities is you help, you're helping to solve a problem for them to me, or, or I would think, and that you're providing a, a livelihood for, for these communities and, and lifting them out of poverty while also providing them with a, I guess you could consider fish a, a, a renewable resource when you introduce that conservation ethic uh, to them. Yeah. And look, it, it's in the end, it's much bigger than fish, right? So, you know, the, the model that we kind of use in, in, in our heads and in practice is 
if we can create opportunities for economic growth locally, because, you know, you shouldn't be naive enough to think that these people aren't touched, right? right. Almost every community in the world um, has moved from a barter economy to a monetary economy. I always tell this story. I'll just deviate for a minute. If that's all right. I always yeah. tell this story about my first trip, trip to, to Rewa, um, which uh, was even before IndyFly was formed. But, uh, you know, I didn't know what to expect, really. And I expected to go see loincloths and spears, man, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you think about your 300 miles in the middle of the rainforest, that's what you're going to find. Yep. And what I got was Ed Hardy t-shirts. Really? Ed Hardy t-shirts. And so, yeah, what happens is, you know, so there it's a little bit different. You're in the Amazon basin, rainy season to dry season, the water levels will drop, you know, 40 feet, let's say, on average. And so during the dry season, you can get, you know, to most of these communities by a road. And uh, what happens is, you know, foreign mining camps and uh, timber harvesters drive around to these villages and offer gifts in exchange for timber rights or mining rights, usually. Um, wow. Sometimes the, those gifts are cash. A lot of times it's just, here's a truckload of stuff. And, uh, you know, so my, my point is, when we talk about creating opportunities for economic growth, those can be good and bad, right? Yep. Um, those can be destructive. Um, in many cases, but they can also be empowering. And so what we really focus on is, is how do we create economic growth in a way that um, is going to empower communities to, to conserve resources. And that's not just fish, right? Um, you know, in, in the case of, let's just stick with Rewa for simplistic sake, uh, you know, they are um, owners of a big chunk of rainforest, right? And so it's not just protecting fish, it's giving them the ability to protect that, that the other re resources, right? Timber, mining, all those things, minerals. So um, yeah, again, you know, and then that cycle just keeps going and going and going, right? So the more opportunities for economic growth we can create, the more the community feels empowered, the more they're able to conserve resources, the better those resources are. In theory, the better the economic opportunity is from them in, in, in our model, right? And yep. so, you know, it's just this cycle, if we do it right, that it is, you know, just ever changing or ever moving. That, so that's awesome. And, and that's kind of, I was actually reading something about this the other day, but it's like, it's, I guess what you would call a virtuous cycle, right? It's like you, you create good economic growth that leads to empowerment that leads to, you know, so that there you're creating this um, because the, the reality is, is it sounds like, and I, and honestly, I did get kind of wrapped around the axle on thinking about conservation of the fish. I didn't even think about, the, the fact that these, you know, these indigenous cultures are feeling pressure from the outside world, say, look, you actually do have something that's valuable, we want it. And, you know, we basically can hoodwink you and, you know, give you this, like you said, truckload full of gifts, and you're going to give me the rights to your land, which is, that, that's bad economic growth. Um, and, 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 and that's really um, incredible, because now that goes, that kind of ties back to, okay, well, you're helping to lift some of these communities up uh, with good economic growth, but also protecting biodiversity at the same time, which is incredible. Yeah, and let me just jump in and, and, and make this point, Rick, which, you know, um, 
I don't think everybody's familiar with, but so the IndieFly model is one in which these, these operations are 100% community owned and operated. IndieFly doesn't take a stake. We're willing to invest in their success, obviously, and provide technical and other tools to ensure that success. But at the end of the day, this is their business, right? Um, and that's the only way it works, to be honest, right? Um, th th they are, they are, you know, they have their own destiny in their hands, right? And, and we think that we can, um, you know, help them along the way. But we also aren't the people who come in and say, we have the solution to everything. Um, you know, here's some money, here's some tools, here's some resources, let us fix this for you. Because that model is a short-term model. Um, you know, that, that model, you know, hopefully what we do in projects outlives all of us. And the only way it does is if it's their, their project and yeah. their, their business. Right. So, um, just want to throw that in there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's really important because they have to have the ownership and it's not you coming in and, and dictating that this is the way that it should be done. Um, which is, which is great. And so let me, let me ask you this, Matt, the, how, how did this, how did this get started? I mean, what, what is the, what you mentioned that like you went to, um, to, to the Amazon before IndieFly even, even began, which has kind of got me interested in learning a little bit more about the, the history of, of IndieFly. Yeah, sure. So, um, IndieFly was really born or formed out of this Costa Sunglasses led project in Rewa. Okay. So, um, uh, to, to give you the short version of the story and then we can expand on anything you, you want to hear more about. But um, so Costa Sunglasses had a pro who was doing some guiding unrelated to fish in the Rupununi region of Guyana, which is where Rewa is. And uh, the guide, uh, they stayed at Rewa for a night and he kind of fell in love with the people and the culture. And he also knew that they had arapaima, which is a very unique species of fish. And so he comes back and he, he's telling his contacts at Costa, look, you know, these people have made this really hard decision in that unlike some of their peers in the region, they want to see resources conserved. No one's coming right? Um, you know, so what can we do to help them? And so Costa put together a small team to figure out how to try and help them. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of that team. And so we all went down and, and figured it out in the end. And we can, when we talk about projects, we can expand a little bit more on Rewa and what it looks like. But in the end, um, we created this model that we felt could be replicated in, in other parts of the world. And so, um, you know, that kind of core group got together and said, look, you know, not one company or not one individual should be responsible for taking all this on. Let's start a nonprofit, which isn't always the easiest thing to do, right? Yeah. And, uh, and certainly there's the question of, does the world need another nonprofit? And uh, so we thought long and hard about it, but at the end of the day, we decided to form our own unique organization and, and replicate the model in other places in the world. So that's the short and skinny of it, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, all right. And so where, where all, or so you mentioned obviously Rewa and I kind of do want to kind of dive in and, and learn a little bit more about the, the, the individual projects. Where, where else do y'all have projects going on in the world? You bet. 
so in my head, we, we kind of tier projects out, right? So you have active projects. Um, and then what I call, uh, projects in some form of development. And then we have this list that's ever growing of projects that, uh, we think the model could work in, uh, given all the, the internal resources that we need, funding people, et cetera. Um, so those are kind of the three tiers. And so our active projects, there's three of them. So Rewa, which is, uh, again, Guyana, South America. Anna Atoll, which is in French Polynesia. And the Wind River Indian Reservation in Wyoming. Okay. And so if you'd like, I'll just, I'll just kind of give you what each of those looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So Rewa... Um, again, Rupununi region of, of Guyana, truly uh, like special place. You're in the Amazon basin. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of species of fish. Uh, there's, I, I always liken it to walking into a Disney movie. You know, like you're on this <laughs> boat and all of a sudden, you know, this, you know, 50 blue macaws or, you know, whatever. I'm not a bird guy, but, um, you know, we'll just come, you know, flying by your boat and then you know you hear monkeys and you see a harpy eagle and you know there, there's jaguars i mean stuff everywhere right and it's just beautiful and so they're a community just shy of 300 people um and they have the village and eco lodge they also have uh arapaima which is what our fishing operation or their fishing operation rather targets so you have uh you know, this prehistoric air breathing, uh, you know, dinosaur li that lives in these waters around Rewa. So again, I mentioned rainy season, and dry season, that drop. So generally during the rainy season, they live in the rivers. And during the dry season, when that water recedes, they become trapped in these ponds in the middle of the jungle. And wow. so that's when you can target them, right? Is, is, you know, when they can't, swim wherever they want to swim and so um you know again rewa made this tough decision that they want to conserve the resources and not sell off rights and um conserve their fish and wildlife populations but the community really needed to support itself as we talked about again they they had already moved away from that barter economy and so uh, you know fast forward a few years uh we figured out how to catch arapaima on a fly with regularity, um, you know, which isn't always easy. The, you know, and a lot of that is, is based on local knowledge, right? I mean, I'm, I should preface this by, I'm by far the worst flying involved in this organization. Um, so, you know, for all you technical experts out there, uh, don't judge me, but you know, um, the, uh, the thing is, you know, I look at, you know, you're in this pond and in this hand dugout canoe and the, the fish are super sketchy. And so you, you're quiet and everything around you is quiet. And, you know, you see, again, they're obligate air breathers, right? So they roll. And then the idea is to, you know, time those rolls and th they roll, you know, uh, you know, basically to the minute you can time it. And, uh, you know, the Roven or whomever the local guy is in the boat will say, all right, cast 50, 75, however many yards at three o'clock in 30 seconds. And the idea is to, you know, put your fly so they see it and, and, and you know, and, uh, and uh, notice that it's there. Anyway, 
again, long story short, not an easy task to figure out how to, how to catch those things. Um, you know, I, I know that you've interviewed Oliver White on this podcast before. He's got great yeah. stories because he and another guy named Matt Brewer were the people to go down and do it. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm kind of bouncing all around here, but fast forward, we figured out how that could work. Now we had to figure out how to get people down there. Right. right. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you're at that point in time, you're dealing with a community that is off the grid in every way, right? Yep. There's no connection. You know, they, uh, if they have a health emergency, they get on the shortwave radio and they call the next village. He calls the next village. He eventually gets to Georgetown. Right. Wow. And, and somebody comes two days later. <laughs> um, so type of thing, but, uh, you know, so my point is, it's not like they can, they can send emails out and market and, you know, do all that. They, they do that now based on the reinvestment back in the business, which I'll get to. But, you know, then we had to figure out how do we get people down here? Yep. And, uh, you know, how do we get the right people down here, right? And uh, because while you can have an amazing time fishing for uh, peacock bass and arowana and piranha and all the other hundreds of species that are down there, the real target, and if you're going to spend that money to in that amount of time to go down there, you want to catch a giant prehistoric animal that you know takes two or three people to hold up, and you know all those things. So um, we, we figured that out, right? And so we we figured out how to get people down there, and then we had to figure out how to improve the experience, right? So how can we make the best experience possible? And so that that's where hospitality training comes in. Right. So, you know, here's a community of 300 people. We want it to be 100% operated by the community. Let's train some people up on hospitality and moving boats and all that thing. And so if, if, if you go back to our model, I talk about it as a hub and spoke a lot. So in Rewey, you have an eco lodge, right? Um, and let's call that the hub. And then off that hub, our goal is to create as many small scale entrepreneurial activities around it, right? So, um, you know, that can be uh, people who cook, that can be people who clean the, the, the um, cabins while people are out fishing, that can be somebody who raises chickens and so people have eggs in the morning. You know, you can make all those things. Another really cool component that we've implemented in Rewa and in Anna um, is this idea of local data collection, right? So the science team will come down and, and we, we tag every fish, we do weight and girth on every fish. Um, you know, as you can imagine, recapture rates are, are few and far between, but we wanna have a better understanding. And so, um, what we're able to do now is provide some jobs through data collection too. So, you know, science team trains up a local person on how to do these measurements, how to appropriately tag a fish, how to read a tag, how to do all those things. And that creates more jobs, right? Um, some of the jobs are just simply moving boats between ponds. Um, and so you can get really creative in how you create jobs in one of these projects that just goes a long way. Right? So, you know, backing up, it used to be that, um, mostly the men would leave Rewa to go work in a mining camp or go um, work somewhere else. And what happens there is they're gone for months at a time. And by the time they get back, you know, having to pay for their travel and meals and all those things while they're away, 
they are making much money, you know, in some cases breaking even. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was really hard on the families for those men to be gone for so long. And so now, you know, with that hub and spoke model, you're able to, the, the eco lodge is basically able to employ and find a job for anyone who wants to stay, which is, is quite amazing. So that's a, a really cool job creation success story. Yeah. There you also have some pretty amazing conservation success stories, right? So if, if you, if you go back in time, even before we were there in, in, um, in, in that region of Guyana, you're talking about, you know, let's say a 200 pound fish on average up to, you know, 300 pounds, let's say that feeds a lot of mouse, right? Yeah. And so at one, at one point, Arapaima were in jeopardy of becoming extinct. Um, and so, you know, the decision was made to conserve the species, but now they've taken it to a whole different level, right? So um, I, I, I had this amazing story that was was told by uh, by Rovin, you know, one of the guides. Um, you know, he's the head guide and now chairman of the Eco Lodge. He's kind of our point person there, if you will. And he, uh, you know, we get this random email. You know, just got back from uh, saving Arapaima, and he expanded on it. And what they did was again rainy season, dry season, that 40 feet, 40 foot drop, you know, they hadn't had a record rainfall in almost a year and a half, two years. So, you know, natural evaporation, other things, those ponds will dry up just like any other place. Right. And so if the, if the water doesn't flood the jungle enough for those fish to get out, they're, they're trapped there. And then they become susceptible to predation, right? Um, everything there wants to kill you. And it also wants to kill those fish, right? So, you know, you have a uh, risk of jaguars, you have risk of birds of prey, you know, coming down and feeding on these fish. And the villagers were very concerned about that. So what they did was they went and took canoes and filled them with water and put arapaima from the ponds into the canoe and drug them across the rainforest to put them back in the river so they'd survive. Wow. Knowing that the, that fish is their ability to, um, you know, create jobs and reinvest in their community and do all these things now, right? Yeah. Um, and so that just shift in mindset is is like, wow, okay, this is working. Um, and uh, you know, look, they're ultimate conservationists. It, 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 we shouldn't be surprised, but it, it was just a really cool story, right? Um, and so uh, you then, you know, let's fast forward a little bit to where we are today and and the success of that fishing business this year aside because you know covid right um you know has they've done pretty well and so what that results in is this ability to make reinvestments in their community right so um again it's it's their business they choose what they do with profits we of course will say hey you know here are some good practices or here are some things that you can do but at the end of the day, it's their decision. Um, but what they have done is they've, you know, improved edu education. They've uh, expanded their school. They built a computer lab. They, um, you know, hired some teachers. They improved their healthcare. So there's a health post now wow. um, uh, in the village. They put in satellite internet. You know, some of that is good and some of that is bad, right? When, when you talk about uh, influence on a culture, you have a community that 
it wasn't connected at all. And now they have internet, right? And, and all the good and bad things that come with that. Yes, it's great because they can interact directly with customers and share pictures and stories and all these things. Um, and, and the client relationship improves, but you also have all the derogatory things that come with, with internet connection, right? Um, uh, solar power and just really this overall improvement in day-to-day -day life. Uh, yep. that they've been able to, to reinvest in. And so, uh, you know, look, maybe this is going aside a little bit here, but, uh, you know, there's many spectacular places to fish around the world. One of the things that I think sets IndieFly projects apart from other places is this ability to immerse in the local culture yep. while fishing in a place where very few people have fished, right? And yep. that, that's kind of across all of our projects. So, you know, <clears throat> the stories that people tend to tell their friends and family are having less emphasis on the size or number of fish caught, but rather now revolve around the amazing locals they met and the unique culture they were introduced to and the impact that they know they're able to have in a community simply by doing what they love to do. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's super cool. And, and that's something that, you know, increasingly it's just the, I guess, I guess it's the way of the world, but it's like, I, I'll, I kind of talk about it. Just what you mentioned, having this unique experience with a culture. I mean, you know, the, the, the bigger the world's population grows and the more interconnected we all get, you're starting to, to lose some of that. So it's, it, it's, it's, incredible that you could go have a truly unique experience and particularly there you kind of described it what I was envisioning in my head which was like it's like a Disney movie or something you know it's like a, a true uh, un untouched paradise um, rich in biodiversity and and um, I just have always kind of been obsessed a little bit with archaeologists and Indiana Jones that's kind of what where, where my head's at with it of like this yeah. truly like exploratory type type of a feel, which is awesome. Um, but I also love to hear about the, the success stories, um, particularly there and them understanding that, you know, without IndieFly, they're in a position where they're breaking even to go travel, to basically do what they have to do to provide for their family and through fly fishing, it sounds like they y'all have built um, a sustainable economic uh, growth engine for, for that community to um, improve and sustain itself um, in a way that's probably a lot more desirable than having to go travel and, 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 and work in a mine or do whatever it is they have to do to uh, provide for their families. Um, so, I do, because I, I do have a an interest, particularly um, in French Polynesia, just because um, I'm mildly obsessed with, with, with which who isn't. Um, I had an opportunity, my wife and I, um, we went to Morea and Rangaroa um, a few years ago before we had kids and went on a trip and <laughs> um, and, and that was my bucket list trip. And so I've always been fascinated, um, with the, the culture and, uh, the, the beauty of French Polynesia. And so I, I, I'd love to learn a little bit more about what y'all have, have going on there with, with, with that project. Yeah, sure. So, um, let me just 
back up and, and I feel like I should say this. So, you know, the people in Rewa are amazing and I have no doubt that they would have figured out something on their own eventually. Um, you know, we were lucky to be able to help them along and maybe, you know, speed up that process a little bit, but again, you know, this is their success more than it is ours. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and we're really proud, proud of that. So, um, you know, so now we have this, this model that has seen some success and, uh, you know, which presents this natural roadmap, if you will, to scale into other places of need around the world. And so we, we were looking at places and, uh, and um, a gentleman had reached out who has an, a fishing operation on this uh, 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 atoll in French Polynesia, which is really unique, called Tetiaroa. And it's amazing fishing if you, if you can ever get there. And um, it's it's the Mar the famous Marlon Brando estate owned no. atoll, and so uh, he asked if we'd come check it out. Uh, we did so, and there you have. Uh, so what happened was the the Brando estate signed this you know very very long term lease for uh, developer in in the U.S. to build one of these bungalow type resorts on the uh, on the atoll. Um, went beautiful place, amazing fishing. Uh, our model revolves around community and there is no community there, right? Um, there, there's like one local that lives there. Um, and he wow. was the only one. And now, you know, you have this resort, which is staffed, um, you know, largely by people, uh, that are not from French Polynesia. And so, you know, we looked at it as like, this is great and it's beautiful, but, um, you know, our community, our, our model again revolves around a community. So it just doesn't really work from us. But what's cool about French Polynesia, and you kind of touched on this, is there's 118 islands and atolls in French Polynesia. Mm-hmm. So if you can make it work somewhere, in theory, you can make it work pretty quickly in other places, right? And, and within French Polynesia. And so um, we looked for another place. The same guy had, had, uh, had been to Anna in the past and he's like, all right, I think this is it. And so we, we went to Anna and immediately fell in love. So you have a population of roughly 500 people down from about 5,000 in the past. Um, I'll get a little bit into the reasons why you have this amazing culture where Anna is known as the warriors, right? So, um, you know, they were the conquerors of that archipelago and and so you know they they would go and conquer all these things and come back and you know you you, there's just endless stories and pride in their dominance as an atoll and so um you know i could go in a million different directions and i'd love to tell all those stories but for the sake of time time, i'm not (laughs) going to um but there's a couple reasons why you've had this decline in population so you know you go there and you know it's it's kind of an elongated atoll and uh you can go visit different villages where people used to live and now they're all congregated on one end of the island or atoll and uh you know the reason why the the population has decreased are, are twofold really in my eyes. One, every kid on that Island leaves at 11 to go to school. So they have, you know, what we would call elementary school, um, on, 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 and, uh, um, but then they, they leave and they leave home and they leave their families. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I have a kid almost that age. I can't imagine like shipping him off and seeing him twice a year to, to, to go to school. So, 
Um, that's how it works there. And then, you know, they end up in what we would call high school in Tahiti, which is, you know, a proper city. And they end up staying because there's really no economic opportunity for them back home. And the, the, the largest economic driver on the atoll for, for in the recent history has been this product called the Copra. So everything on, around life there revolves around the coconut tree. And this is certainly part of it. So each family has what's called a, they call it the sector. And they go out to the sector and they uh, harvest coconuts and they cut them in half and dry them out in the sun. And then the French government gives them a subsidy um, to uh, do that. And it ends up in this burlap bag and they ship them off and it gets further processed into like coconut oil and th things that you, you would find in, in a store. And there's a couple of reasons why, why that's hard now. One, it's really hard work. And two, um, you know, you, you've had some natural disasters that have diminished tree populations and families have grown. And so not, and my point is not everybody is able to do that full time anymore. Right. Um, and so, uh, you have a, a real need to have families reunited. I mean, it, it, it is a big thing, right? So one, one of our head guys there, um, his name's Raphael, you know, his, his daughter recently left, um, you know, a couple years ago now to, to go to France just because there was no opportunity for her to stay on, on the island. And it, you know, I saw firsthand the toll that that takes on someone. Anyway, so uh, we go check out Anna and it's an amazing place, amazing fishery, picturesque flats, um, you know, a pretty strong reef fishery. Uh, and I'll never forget this moment. We were sitting in a driveway, as you do on, on an island like that, and talking. And, you know, we were just creating conversation. And we're like, you know, what's your favorite fish to eat here? Immediately, the answer is bonefish. Really? Immediately. Which is, you know, you don't hear everywhere, right? And, you know, it, it's one of those things that we learn is deeply rooted in this specific island's culture. Hmm. And so, um, you know, we're like, well, that is primarily what people would be targeting, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, so, you know, I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. But again, back to the science and conservation, the last thing we want to do is bring a bunch of people in and impact their ability to catch bonefish and eat them, right? Yeah. I mean, we would never ask them not to eat bonefish. Um, so we needed to make sure that that fishery was sustainable enough to allow additional pressure. Mm -hmm. And so um, we uh, helped fund a scientist that lived there and finished his PhD on this work. And amazing guy, I mean, I'm convinced he's the only person that could do that. Um, you know, you, you have, again, the warrior culture and you're messing with their favorite thing, right? Um, and he had to develop relationships with every local and, you know, uh, he had to just go through the, the multiple layers of building trust and building trust enough to where he could simply go to uh, uh, the water in the morning and ask to count fish. Right. Um, and so, you know, and he did a bunch of other things, but, um, you know, he, he, so we did data collection for quite a long time there again, with the reason being that is important to them. So it's important to us. Yep. And so, uh, 
you know, the data showed that it was really not a sustainable fishery, but you always have to balance, you know, economic opportunity with, with, with science a little bit. And so we did start sending a few people there working with uh, a booking agent and, you know, but we made sure that it was known that these are a few things. One, this is a research angler trip right? So you're going to have a scientist on your boat and you're going to have to take the time to make sure that we get data from that fish, uh, after you land it. Um, and, and, you know, you're one of the first people to go there. So, you know, we asked for your patience and all those people were amazing and it worked out, but we weren't ready, quite, quite ready to open up the floodgates. And so as we started and, and kind of in the middle of this data collection product, process we got really involved with the local school on on the island and uh again this is all alex the scientist but he developed a relationship with uh the school kids that ran deep and he uh you know was helping them figure out you know how fish move around the atoll and all this stuff and and long story short the kids fell in love with it and they took ownership of it and the director of the school there um is great and and he ran with it and so uh, they were able to get established this marine educational area. And so what happens is, um, unlike other atolls, uh, Anna has very little tidal inflow. And so there's basically one spot on the whole island where bonefish can go out to spawn. And what you have is you have these um, ancient, like ancestral, almost stone maze traps that these fish swim into, right? And so they go down this pass and you can go right and you get caught in, in this maze or you go left and you make it out to spawn. And when they go right, they swim around and they eventually end up in these traps called that, that are chicken wire. And, um, you know, there are public traps and there's private traps. The private traps are a business in and of themselves, right? And so um, you can go out to the public trap and, and take bonefish out and take them and do whatever you want with them. But uh, a few families own these private traps and they go in and, uh, you know, collect their bonefish and then sell them in the community, right? Great business. Um, but you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of bonefish, right? At their most uh, vulnerable stage when they're going out to spawn. And so you're basically cutting off the legs at a, of a vulnerable population already. And so um, we, Alex educated the kids on all this stuff. And, uh, you know, they got super behind it and we, we bought them a drone and they could fly over the, the, the spawning aggregation and see, and then we, you know, gave them some software where they could count the fish and they got really into it long story short. So, so they worked with, um, the school director really worked with, uh, the government in French Polynesia to create a marine educational area in that area, in that spawning aggregation area. Right. And so now you have some teeth around it. It's protected. Um, and the kids every day would go out every afternoon and they would, um, collect samples of, you know, different species of what's living in the water and they got into it. And then, um, you know, let's fast forward a little bit. So now we understand that this bonefish population is not sustainable, right? So we look for what's called a spawning potential ratio. And, um, you know, in the beginning, it was about nine, right? So a sustainable fishery is about 20%. Okay. And so, um, you know, in the next generation, and it may take longer than that, but 
relatively soon, that population is going to collapse and they won't be able to eat and enjoy bonefish or they won't be able to, to, to put bonefish on a plane and send it to their family in Tahiti or, or wherever. Right. And that's really important to them. Um, and the adults are like, look, there, there's been bonefish here my whole life. There's always going to be bonefish. And the kids are like, look, you know, and granted, these are kids under 11. They're like, you know, the, the, you need to look out here a little bit and, and, and take me into account. And so what they did was they wanted to do this thing called a Rahui, which is this Polynesian ancestral, um, you know, they, they call it uh, a political move. What it really is, is it's, it's a moratorium on harvest of a species. And they exist elsewhere, um, like on giant clams and some uh, uh, floral fauna type things, um, floral fauna type things, and, and other islands and atolls. But there, there hadn't been one um, on Anna in, you know, 100 plus years. And so this was a big step, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about um, asking people not to catch the thing, to lo- the, the thing they love most um, for a period of, of time throughout the year, right? And so what the kids did was they literally got a bus and they went door to door and they said, look, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, I want you to start thinking about making decisions for me and not just for your generation. And they were able to enact a Rahui. Wow. And so what the, it is just this amazing, you know, like if you were to ask me, where do you see this going? That wasn't even in the possibilities, right? That's incredible. Um, and uh, I mean, it's all the kids, right? I mean, they, they are true leaders in this regard. And so um, they enacted a Rahui. So the Rahui is in effect for three months out of the year during the spawning season. And it's, uh, and it's a moratorium on harvest again. So um, you can't uh, capture and kill bonefish during those three months, and, uh, which allows them to go out and spawn and come back, hopefully. And, uh, you know, so that kicked off uh, a couple years ago. You know, we did this big ceremony. And the reason why I tell this story is it comes back to Alex. So, you know, we, we did this big ceremony. It's very culturally driven. Um, you know, everybody comes out and, uh, you know, like we were each asked to bring a, uh, uh, a stone, a rock from our, our home area. And we'd place the rock on this mantle where, where they actually sacrifice some bonefish and, and, you know, they, they, they stay there throughout the year. And, um, you know, we go around and, you know, at night at a different event, we're kind of all saying where we were from and, uh, Alex stands up and, uh, says, you know, I'm Alex and everybody applauses and he gets to, I'm from, and he's from Hawaii and California. He's going to say one of those two things and everybody just screams, Anna, you know, like it's, they've just really adopted him. And, you know, it it was just a really cool sight to see. Anyway, bouncing all around here. I apologize. No, no, um, this is great. The effectiveness of that Rahui is documented, right? So it's, it's, it was a five-year Rahui. So we're, we're kind of in the middle of it right now. Um, and look, a lot of things can change and, you know, like true scientists, our science team will, will, are often hesitant to say this is working or this is not working because there are a million multipliers on that that can, you know, change weather, tides, um, all all those things, moon phases. And so, um, but what we have documented is this 10% increase in 
in that spawning potential ratio, right? So now you're up to about 19 and 20 is a sustainable population. And so we're getting pretty close. Now our target spawning potential ratio, I call it SPR, I'm trying to spell it out, is, uh, is much higher than that, right? I mean, we, we, we wanted to see it flourish. Um, so uh, we, we still have some work to do, but you know, that's been this another amazing conservation success story. Um, uh, of the people of Anna and really the kids of Anna, right? So there you're creating some generational change yep. in, in, in mindset, um, which is really, really cool to see. And, uh, you know, those kids uh, are so proud of themselves and we're so proud of them. And it's just really cool to see. I mean, that, that's like, I, I, I got chill bumps uh, when you were telling the story about <laughs> Alex, when they said that, I mean, that's so inspiring. And, you know, one, one of the things, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that, that I'm hearing is whether it's in uh, Rewa or in this case, French Polynesia, there, there is a, there's a problem with finding jobs. And that is a, a significant driver that is, is that the problem that y'all are help, helping to solve? And in the process, you're, um, you have these amazing conservation success stories that happen to be related to, to fly fishing, but it's from, from what I was hearing, it's like, okay, well in, in Rewa, they'll have to leave for a number of months In French Polynesia, they're, uh, leaving to go get an education and may not come back because they know there's no opportunity for them to, to prosper. Um, is that, am I, am I wrong in, in thinking that or saying that, or, or, or is that kind of what, what y'all are helping to, to achieve? No, absolutely. You know, uh, again, it goes back to a couple things, that cycle, right. Of, of you know, um, conserving resources, economic opportunity, opportunity, empowering communities, all, all those things, right? It also comes back to those three pillars of conservation or three pillars of sustainability that we, that we talk about a lot. And, you know, one of those is cultural, right? And so, you know, in almost all these areas that we operate, family is a huge part of their culture. And so, you know, while we focus on a lot on, you know, making sure we're doing socioeconomic studies to ensure that, you know, a bunch of largely white people aren't coming down and changing their way of life or introducing them to things that can be negative. Um, you know, there's also that play and what can we do to ensure that families stay together? Um, and because it, it is a big part of their culture. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's definitely a main driver for us. You know, we talk about fishing a lot because that's the tool that we use for all of this, yeah. but what we should be talking about more is, sustainable livelihoods and the human impact of what fly anglers are able to do. Right. Yep. Um, you know, there's this big push in, in the fly fishing industry to introduce more people to sport as there should be. And they're having some success. This is one area where, you know, I think that we should talk about a lot more, which is look, when you go visit a place to fish, you have more of an impact than you realize, right? I mean, you come to an indie fly project, ask somebody about how the fishing business has changed their day to day life. I, I mean, you, 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 they'll talk your ear off. Right. Um, and, and so that is, you know, a fault of, of our own, you know, we should be telling more stories about what you just said, job creation, sustainable livelihoods, reinvestment in communities, all those things. Um, because that resonates pretty far pretty wide. Yeah. 
and 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 one one of the things too that that I'll just I would I do want to hear about the Wind River Range too. By the way, we're gonna but but one of the yeah we'll the, get to it. <laughs> but but one of the things that I want to drive home is so there's always with with the nature of of, of my business is is a sustainable business consultancy. What what the same thing you're describing is is what is also. Um, which I know you're familiar with, but, but is, is the triple bottom line. Right. And so if you're a, if, if you're a business, you want to not just measure your economic bottom line, but also what is your impact on society? You know, what is your impact on the environment and what indie fly does is really the perfect example of this. It's, it, it is a um, look, we can conserve resources we can create jobs. We can um, improve our, uh, build our culture and our society up in power is, is the word that, that, that y'all use, which is perfect for this. But it's really kind of the, if, if anyone was ever looking for, well, provide me with an example of a triple bottom line business model or a sustainable business model, sustainable development, I think that you, y'all have it, uh, here. So, um, that would be your exhibit a, so that, that that's my, that, that, that's my sustainable business, uh, lesson of the day. But, um, but, but, but I think that's super cool and, and, and an important kind of uh, connection to make between, um, how, how sustainable business models, uh, work. So that's, that's pretty, pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, appreciate that. And that's kind of you to say, um, you know, look though, this, none of this happens without the community's buy-in. Yep. Right. And so they, they're inherently um, sustainable in almost every project we work in. Right. You know, these are people who want to conserve their resources. They just may not realize the impact they're having or how to, um, you know, make it sustainable generationally. And that's what we really look to do across all those pillars of sustainability is we aren't in it for the short term, right? We want to create long-term generational change mm -hmm. and so, um, or, or sustainability. And so, you know, that's, that's really what we focus on. But again, this, these are the community's successes um, more so than they are ours. And, and, you know, it's, it's their drive that makes these things happen. Well, let's, let, let, let's talk about, uh, wind river success story and 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 that project that might be a good um segue into um learning more about that and that's here in 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 wyoming is that right and i say here here in the u.s and in, in wyoming yeah so this is our newest project um so you know going out of anna we we again you know, if you look at a map, if you will, you know, you're tr trying to create this portfolio of places that are, are diverse, both in terms of a price point and geographical diversity and experience, you know, all, all those things. And so we look at it and said, you know, there's a need here, right here at home. Why aren't we doing anything here? And so uh, the Wind River Reservation, for those who aren't familiar again in wyoming is one of the most spectacular wild and remote places left in the 48 lower 48 um rich in native culture history uh unlimited outdoor recreation opportunities here um but again it's it, it has challenges you know just like every other reservation system uh, on 
in, in, in the United States. So there's two tribes on the reservation. So um, the Eastern Shoshone and Northern Arapaho tribes, it's 2.3 million acres. It's wow. giant, right? Um, again, face many of the same challenges other indigenous communities around the country face, lack of economic opportunity. You're in central Wyoming, right? So unlike places that are, uh, you know, are reservations located around an urban environment where enrolled members can go get jobs in cities. That doesn't happen here, man. You're in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, uh, substance abuse, violent crimes, high suicide rates, um, and just this general disconnect from nature are some of the challenges that uh, people, especially youth, face growing up on the reservation, right? Um, you know, it, it, it has been and probably continues to be kind of the poster child of all things uh, uh, wrong on, on, on the reservation system. Uh, but the people there are just absolutely amazing. There's so much pride about being born on the reservation and they want to stay on the reservation and they want to, you know, make an impact. But here's the thing. Again, central Wyoming, if you don't work for one of the tribal governments or which includes casinos, there's really no place for you to work. You know, you, you, can go, you can go to Lander or Riverton or, you know, one of these smaller towns that are outside the reservation and get a job, but you're also competing with other people. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's just uh, uh, one of those places where, you know, um, people want to stay on the reservation again, just don't have the opportunity to do so. So, you know, 2.3 million acres, central Wyoming, beautiful place natural resources are by far that reservation's largest asset, right? Um, there, the protection of those resources falls on the Tribal Fish and Game Office, which is a, a group of five people. So you have a director, three wardens, and an office manager. And they uh, are, are amazing, dedicated individuals. Just imagine for a second trying to patrol a piece of land that takes eight hours to drive across with a team of four people, right? Um, you know, so you, you have all those issues that you have in other places, uh, you know, um, poaching crime, all, all those things. It's a really tough job given the size and scope, but you'd be greatly challenged to find a team more dedicated to, to not only the protection of th that reservation, their homeland, but also creating opportunities for youth. So, um, you know, one of the one of the first trips we did there is we um, got involved with this youth organization that was all about mentorship and and we wanted to take a, a bunch of kids camping and so um, me and a couple other guys um, you know did this trip with uh, you know a group of eight or ten ten kids who were in the program and uh, you know we we slept in teepees uh, you know buy some water and you know fished and did all this stuff and really. You know, this was this was on me, but I kind of expected to go there and learn from them, right? Um, as much as I could about their culture and the reservation system and whatever. And what we quickly found out is that they, um, you know, face the same challenges as every other kid in America for their time, right? Um, you know, school, video games, all those things. There, what you have though is, you know, due to uh, numerous things, most of those kids were being raised by the grandparents. And so um, you have, you know, uh, an older population trying to take care of a younger population. 
But yet that older population really doesn't have the ability anymore to take them in the backcountry and go to ancestral sites and teach them all the cool, significant things that happen on the reservation. And, you know, so what we found was the majority of those kids, and there were a couple of exceptions, but the majority of them had never been off the highway system on the reservation. Wow. Right? And so, you know, you have paradise in your backyard in many cases, but they just, they don't access it. Right. And so, you know, so I'll mention this name a few times, probably throughout this conversation. Uh, the director of travel fishing game there, his name, his name is art. And he is this unique guy who, um, has done so much good on the reservation. And if he had more resources could multiply that impact, you know, a hundredfold. Um, but at the same time, he's dealing with all the challenges of being director of travel fishing game. Um, but he's got a very strong youth initiative <clears throat> to solve some of these problems, right? So opportunities for kids to go out in the backcountry, opportunities for them to, to um, immerse in their own culture and uh, do all those things. So um, just backing up to travel fishing game more on that topic. So, you know, you have that law enforcement side, right? And then on the management side, uh, on that front, they do get some help from two pretty amazing U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service biologists. Uh, I've had the opportunity to see these guys work. They definitely share our goals and commitment to Wind River, but like most people who work on the reservation are short-staffed and underfunded. Um, you know, I'll just make a comparison here. So down the road a few hours, you have Yellowstone National Park, similar geographic footprint, right? Um, uh, obviously, it's Yellowstone. They get a lot of visitors. But that park employs upwards of 100 non-law enforcement professionals every year to manage fish and wildlife, right? I mean, you have some of those same resources, but because it's a reservation, they don't have access to the funding, to, um, you know, donations, to all those things that the Park Service has access to. And so, again, an impossible task to ad adequately manage and conserve the amazing fish and wildlife populations on the reservation. Uh, but positive note here, we really believe that all this can improve jobs, management, enforcement, all those things. Um, if we're successful, successful in deploying our model there. So um, I'm talking a lot here. So interrupt me at any time. <laughs> no, but, no, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. Let, let's let's just take a step back a bit. So um, when we go into projects, we're really sensitive to the history of others coming in to solve problems and disappearing. Mm -hmm. And there's no greater example of that in the world than on the U.S. reservation system, right? Yeah. Um, and so our approach is a, is, is a bit different in that we want to create, you know, sustainable livelihoods through entrepreneurship. And yes, again, we're willing to invest in that. But at the end of the day, we don't take a, take a stake in it and it needs to be driven by, um, that local population. So, um, you know, we spent almost four years just going to the reservation regularly and hanging out and meeting people and building relationships built on trust and, and doing all that stuff before we ever talked about what we did or how we do it or what impact we think we can have there. Um, because they've had so much history with people like, oh, I got your solution. Here's some money. Do something with it. Or I got a solution, but you have to do it this way. I don't no. care about all the other factors of what you think about it, your culture, whatever. And look, there are lots of great organizations that work within that system. Um, but, you know, they're sensitive to that as well. 
And so, um, you know, we took four years in our time to make sure that we had those relationships in place and really that trust in place um, before we, you know, really laid out a, a game plan. And so uh, in October of 18, the intertribal council. So again, you have two, two tribes there, which is a little bit unique in that, um, you know, there's a proverbial line in the sand almost. And each, each tribe has their own um, resources and entities when it comes to like housing and sanitation and all the, the utility type stuff. Um, and then the intertribal council comes together and does system-wide initiatives, right? Mm. Reservation-wide initiatives. And so that's made up of, of uh, council members from each tribe. Uh, there's a co-chairmanship, the whole, whole nine yards. So Art and I presented this plan that focuses on utilization of Wind River's amazing resources to create jobs. Um, and really the jobs are created in the project or the jobs created through the project are designed to do a, a few things, right? So they're designed to promote increased youth awareness um, of what's in their backyard, if you will, um, getting them off the highway that can look and, and, and come to fruition in, in a multitude of ways, right? Like that can be camps that can be, um, you know, having a guide school that can be a, a few of those things that we've already started um, incorporating the value of culture as taught by Shoshone and Arapaho leaders. Right. So um, again, how do you get people, and this is a huge issue um, of importance for, for, for the council members who, you know, see their aging population and that institutional knowledge of their culture literally dying off mm -hmm. and it's not being passed down to the next generation. And one day it's going to disappear. And they realize that. And we, uh, understand that and we want to help. And look, the other thing is, is that only enhances a, a, a visitor's experience to that yeah. place. Right. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't want to go fishing on the reservation with a guide from Jackson. And there are many of them who do that and they're great. And they've been very helpful to the, us and nothing against them. But if I want to go, you know, I want to hear the stories of what took place on that reservation a hundred years ago. Yeah. And I want to hear like, what are the cultural traditions and norms that are different from mine? And so that, that, that is a differentiator when you look at booking a trip or who books a trip, right? Trip, right? So that, that is also important to the business side, but um, I'll get back to the point here. Uh, providing sustainable opportunities for people to stay on the reservation, right? There are just simply not enough jobs for everyone. And, you know, when you don't have a job, that leads to all those other things that happen on the reservation that you can take part of, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which aren't always positive. Uh, you know, obviously developing strong conservation ethics is important to us, conserving their largest asset. Um, you know, if, if we're successful there, one of the first things that I would ask the councils to do would be to increase arts budget. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, 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 you gotta, you gotta have the assets in place to make sure that the experience remains good just in terms of population numbers and things like that. Um, uh, promoting these healthy opportunities for kids. Um, I touched on that a little bit already, but you know, there, there are endless opportunities for kids to get involved in things that they shouldn't be involved in. Uh, and you know, if we can get them passionate uh, about conservation and outdoors and you know, whether that be fly fishing or something else, um, you know, that, that mitigates that risk a lot. 
Um, and then just raise awareness of the reservation as an outdoor destination. Now we get a lot of pushback on this one, right? Because there are a lot of people who know about re the Wind River Reservation and it's amazing fishing. And, uh, you know, they want to keep that a secret. And look, that's not their secret to keep, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm happy to have that conversation with anyone. Uh, the need for these people to survive heavily outweighs those people's um, or those anglers honey hole, right? If you will. Um, well, and at, and so, at 2.3 at 2 million acres, there's sounds like there's plenty of, of backcountry and, 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 and river to explore. Yeah, you know, and what's unique there and, and what fires me up about, you know, uh, the reservation is, you know, we, we, we use fly fishing as a tool, right? And we'll always use fly fishing because we know it works and we're all obviously all passionate about it. But when you take a, a look at Wind River and what it can offer, I mean, world-class mountain climbing, yeah. world-class, world-class uh, uh biking right mountain biking uh you know hiking backpacking all these things right so you can take and start a fly fishing model but then that blows up and expands into all these other outdoor type recreational opportunities that are endless really if we yeah. do it right and so you know look i'll say this just to kind of wrap wrap this up but I feel like we talk a lot about objectives and how in our humble view, we can attain them within our organization. But this project in particular has a bigger end goal than simply meeting those objectives, right? Um, the greater end goal here is really impacting the youth and instilling them with this deep respect for not only themselves, because sometimes that is lost, but also for their tribes and culture and history and natural resources that surround them right i mean you you have i mean th this is where sacagawea is from right i mean i mean you have so much history on this reservation let alone wars and all of that it's just a truly unique place filled with truly amazing people um that that we think can can have a lot of success if we do it right but that's the thing you gotta do it right yeah and 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 so what, what I think is that I'm loving uh, or that I'm hearing you say that I love is, you know, when it sounds like, you know, y'all's focus on the community and the people and, you know, the genuineness of that, um, that builds that trust. But if you, if you can educate youth, right. And it's the same thing that, you know, not to, bring it back to me, but it, it, it's similar. And I think probably a lot of fly anglers have the same experience is that you love it so much that you will protect what you love. You will have a connection to something to say, I'm, I'm willing to go to bat for this and I uh, will stand up and fight people who are trying to take that away from me for, for other reasons. And it's a similar experience and it, it you know, it doesn't have to be fly fishing. It could be anything. It could be climbing. Like you said, it could be whatever it is that connects you to nature and gets you back out. And I think that's probably a problem in America with society at large, not just on this reservation is getting that next generation connected and dialed and saying, look, this is, um, for me personally, hearing all of these success stories, I love that it's focused on, on the people who, 
if they fall in love with, with their natural resources, they'll protect them. And that creates job growth and economic opportunities for the communities. And it sounds like y'all are knocking it out of the park because you're replicating a successful model. Um, so thank you. How can people support Indie Fly? And then I will also want to see if you have any sort of cl closing, closing remarks or anything you'd like to, to, to make before we jump off. Yeah, b before I get to that, um, and thank you for, for asking that, um, you know, I, I'll just go back to one thing on, on Wind River, and you can edit this in a way that flows a little bit better. But, you know, uh, what we're really trying to do there is spark a passion, right? And that passion, as you just mentioned, can be a catalyst for conservation and doing good. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, I, I'm just taken aback by, I'll just share one story. Just, you know, I'm not pressed for time. I hope you aren't either. But uh, there was this kid that we met on one of those first trips that was involved in this mentorship program. He came, came to the reservation system a little bit later in his life. Um, certainly had some troubles. I'll leave his name out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he got deeply involved in the outdoors through this, through this project, not ours, someone, you know, the, the on reservation project. And, uh, you know, he ended up joining the, the, uh, it's a joint Montana, Wyoming conservation Corps, And it, uh, it just really led to some amazing things in his life. You know, now he's running the ancestral tribes program for that organization, which, you know, is not only on reservation systems. So when you talk about ancestral lands, you're talking about, you know, where, where everybody in that native culture used to live. Right. Um, and so it's, it, it's a wide stretch and he's got a big responsibility, but I didn't talk to him a couple of years and I happened to run into him on the reservation and uh, he had just got back from climbing Kilimanjaro and it just blew my mind. Right. I mean, like you, you take someone whose scope was so limited to, I'm going to be on this reservation for the rest of my life. And it is what it is to all of a sudden, like I just climbed Kilimanjaro. Traveled halfway across the world, right? I mean, like, <laughs> anyway, awesome. that is amazing. Um, so uh, thanks for asking how people can support. So uh, I'll, I'll ask a couple things. Uh, one is simply share IndieFly with your friends and family. You know, um, I feel like the more people who know about the organization, what we do is great and really about the communities, right? Um, book a trip to one of the projects um, when things return to normal, of course. Uh, if you want more information on that, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, you know, you can, you can, uh, do that through our website or, or, uh, you know, email me or whatever. Um, but you know, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to talk about, you know, the, the needs as well. So all these communities that we serve sustain themselves through ecotourism, right? Nobody's traveling anywhere this year. Um, so they're, they're, they're being hit pretty hard. Um, with really no safety net, right? We, we, we don't see the bottom of this thing. Vaccines are great and uh, hopefully they work, um, but it's going to take some time to, to, to return to normal, especially traveling, you know, to, to these unique places. So all that time, you know, we continue to serve these communities we operate in. Um, just like you can't go anywhere, we can't, you know, host some of our, our largest fundraisers. So uh, we got to find ways to bring these funds uh, into in, our mission in other ways. Right. Um, so, uh, I, I've listened to, to your podcast and I, I will make an assumption that 
like you, your listeners are probably believers in sustainable economies and empowered communities and conserving resources and or the entrepreneurial spirit. So, you know, I'd simply ask as everyone con- contemplates their annual giving, please consider IndieFly, you know, supporting the, the important work that we do. Um, and th- there are a few ways that, that people can do that. So we have this thing called the IndieFly Core. Uh, this is a, a group of monthly givers that uh, are on a mission to improve indigenous communities. So um, you, you, uh, you become not only an important investor in our cause and help the communities uh, that, that we serve, obviously, um, but, you know, through that recurring donation, you, uh, you uh, get, get some unique benefits, right? So, um, you know, we do a monthly drawing. That drawing ranges from, you know, uh, a t-shirt and a hat to, you know, entering to win a trip to one of our, our locations. You get some exclusive content from, from these locations and look, it doesn't take much, you know, uh, you know, 20 bucks a month, whatever anybody can give, but you know, like for less than 66 cents a day, you can have pretty major impact in the communities that we serve, right? So that's, that's another way. Um, you can also make a one-time donation on our website if, if you're so moved, um, that's just indifly, I-N-D-I-F-L-Y dot org. Um, and then uh, we also sell some some pretty cool merch and stuff on the website, including some custom rods built by uh, this third generation rod builder on the Wind River Indian Reservation. So those are just a few ways, um, you know, but again, share, share these stories with your friends and family. Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I am... I'll absolutely love doing this interview the stories of the people. I mean, I feel like every single one of those is it could be its own documentary. Just on, you know what I mean? I mean, it's it, 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 it's incredible uh, the, the impact that Indy Fly is, is having, but uh, also uh, the communities who have decided that this is a Sounds like it's working, so I, I, myself included, I really enjoy getting a little more about the new which y'all did, but just for me personally, the show. So Thanks.